Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today I'd like to talk about the sting of archetypes. And there's a lot I could say. I think I want to try and bring this series to a close um, so that we can move on to other things (coughs) so that I don't get (coughs) so overly perfectionistic that this series never sees the light of day because I think things I have said have been interesting and I want this series out. Um, And the last concept I want to get to is um, this idea that podcast... Archetypes um, can be hated, um, and I think we kind of saw that in the previous podcast. Um, let's just let's just say it like this: um, the right hates. Um, if we just think of Mary and Joseph and and Jesus and and just that, the story of love and a new family. Um, the the far right or the the super conservative types tend to hate that story because they can't control love because there is an element of rebellion to love there's an element of um, sensuality that makes people uncomfortable Um, one of the five basic emotions there's happiness sadness fear anger and disgust and sometimes surprise is added in there Um, is you know the right feels disgust towards the story because there's sensuality it can't be controlled um there's messiness often in how you know as genesis 3 says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife there's messiness often in the leaving you know very few people get that right um a lot of christian people are like oh yeah look at us we never had a rebellious uh time well then it ends up happening later on or or they don't there isn't really leaving you know for the leaving to happen well it's often messy um and there's a messiness in the cleaving in in finding somebody in um in in joining together in in love um sometimes you don't get it right the first time sometimes um you know, you date someone and you, you figure out they're boring. And that's that's a really strong indication from your self-conscious that this is not a good match for you. You don't even have to listen to that. And anyways, the, there's messiness. And the left, the right doesn't like messiness, uh, literally. That's um, Something that Jordan Pearson has mentioned is that people that vote left and right, people that vote conservative or liberal, there's actually psychological reasons for that. And that uh, a conservative person will always vote. Well, some, you know, like your far right and your far left people um, have certain uh, psychological dispositions. And that's, that's important because we need both poles. We need conservative people who like things to be done a certain way, who have a, hot, have a low tolerance for disgust, um, who have a low de- tolerance for things being out of their place and things being you know, too messy. We need those sorts of people in society because things need to be clean. And and sometimes there's a need for the walls to be high and for the categories to be strict and for for things to be done right. People on the left, um, they have personality. um, And Jordan Pearson says it better than me. I'm kind of trying to repeat what he had to say. But they have more of a personality of um, 
openness and creativity and things should be done differently just to do it differently. And so people on the left, people with the left-leaning disposition that want things to be different, that see um, rigidity as tyranny. You know, rigidity is not always tyranny. But the left has a way of seeing it that way. You know, sometimes things are rigid and somebody says things need to be rigid. Things shouldn't change. We need to keep the category separate. And there can be there can be important reasons for that. You know, if you think of bacteria, um, for many many years people couldn't see bacteria, but they knew if you keep a hospital room clean, people don't get sick. And so people, you know, were, were very harsh on that. Keep things clean, keep things in their place, and then people don't get sick. So there was you know there was a victory for the people on the right. Um, but sometimes there's a need for flexibility. You know, if we just keep going with this theme of bacteria, um, there's a guy that wrote the book Guns, Germs, and Steel. And uh, I didn't read the book, but somebody was talking to me at great length about it. And uh, he said that the author has, he, he's trying to look really big picture at cultures and societies and why some cultures you know, dominated the world and why some uh, faded away and disappeared. Uh, and he has the thesis that, well, what part of his thesis, I forget the whole thing, but part of it was that when, when people stay too much within their boundaries, then they don't get immunity. And if they don't get immunity, <clears throat> then they're vulnerable to plague. <clears throat> and I guess he figured he could see this played out throughout history as we look over the hundreds and thousands of years that if you don't get out of your little bubble, you don't get immunities. And if you don't get immunities, well, also, you know, you end up to, um, your DNA isn't complex enough. Uh, you, you don't have enough uh, strength from, um, well, for animals you would say crossbreeding, but for humans you might say um, genetic strength or something like that. But if you, if you marry somebody that's from a very close DNA basis, as you do, um, their DNA over time, if, if people continue to do that, will, will have more and more weaknesses to it. But if, if the DNA um, mixes from far away, you end up with a stronger um, resistance to disease and to genetic uh, imperfections. Um, those sorts of things are kind of sensitive to talk about because... Um, you know, you want to marry for love and things like that. But, and you don't want to think about people like animals, certainly. Uh, that was clearly Hitler's problem and, and, and part of the darkest time in history. Although Hitler had it wrong, right? Hitler had it wrong. He thought the, the Aryans need to, to marry other Aryans when really to make the race stronger, to make humanity stronger. The best thing we can do is to marry somebody as different from us as possible, at least genetically speaking. Alright, I'm wandering a bit. I think the reason I'm wandering is because I'm a little bit scared, <laughs> a little bit nervous. Um, although I'm, I'm all by myself in the room, I know that I'm speaking to anybody in the whole world through a podcast. And um, this is a really contentious issue. We get to something like the fundamental archetypal story of love, of a young family. And it is um, 
it is a firestorm. It is the place where we debate. It is the place where we do not agree. Um, and it is the place where people really get hurt um, because, yeah, they where people really get hurt. And out of that hurt, some people hurt others or some people just, you know, are hurt. And then other people see the hurt and, you know, try and uh, take up their case. It is the place of, of um, much controversy. So I'm not going to try and decide this. Um, and uh, it, it'll be pretty clear, you know, which side I stand on as far as um, being for the archetype or trying to change the archetype. Um, but what I want to talk mostly about is this idea that archetypes cut our archetypes sting. We could ask the question, do people try and change this archetype? And I think that people do. People get really uncomfortable today. Well, I'm uncomfortable. Um, people get uncomfortable around this idea that one man, one woman had a baby and all of heaven and earth are singing. Whoa, hold on a second. That's not okay. You know, and, and we already talked about the right and how they have discussed sometimes about that story and how it's told, how it's told well as kind of a violent, rebellious love story and how the story, it's now about the kids. It's not about the dad and mom anymore. That can also be a problem for, for the right. The left obviously also has a problem with this. Why should it be a man and a woman? Why shouldn't it be two women? Why shouldn't... Why shouldn't the man take on the maternal role? Why shouldn't the woman take on the role of the protector? Um, why shouldn't there be two women or three women or three men? Um, why does it have to be static? Why does it have to be that inflexibility of the man, the woman, the baby? Um, why are there hard edges on, on, on this picture? And so we've asked, asked the question, you know, why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be inflexible like that? Let me answer the question with a question. I know this is frustrating, but let me answer the question with a question. Why does it bother you that it's inflexible? Why does it bother you that there's one man, one woman, one child, or, you know, many children, but, but the, the fundamental picture is one, one man, one woman, one child. <clears throat> why does it bother you? And why does it bother you on the right that, um, that there's passion and messiness? And Well, maybe that's more clear, actually. I think the, the problem here is more from those that, that have a desire to change the boundaries and, and make things open and fresh and, and diverse. And there's a certain limitation to that. There's you can make it open and diverse, but I feel like this this archetype and other archetypes resist change, and you can try and change them, but I don't think I think that they resist it. So, so the question I'm asking now is, why does it bother you that that archetype is has a certain inflexibility to it? And I think that the honest answer to that is that archetypes cut. It hurts. I don't see myself in that picture. I think that's why people want to change the story. And it's not just that story. It's it's other 
fundamental stories, you know, the fundamental love story of Prince Charming riding on a horse and and saving the damsel in distress. Look, I'm not I'm a I'm a woman, but I'm not in distress. I don't want a man to solve all my problems, right? So that's another thing that that there's pushback on. You know, this is a ancient story about a man you know, riding on a horse and, and coming to save the princess. And, you know, why does it always have to be the man that, that is riding on the horse? Why not the woman? Um, and just so I'm including the right in this, um, you know, when Tangled came out, um, there were Christian parents. Uh, one particular, I remember her comment on Facebook was saying something about how it's a great movie, but it kind of incites rebellion. You know, it's it's not the best to show your kids because you don't want them to be rebellious. And my wife and I kind of looked at that like, what? <laughs> this is the story of, a, of an escape from the evil mother. Uh, this is an archetypal story of there's an evil mother that is controlling and domineering and sucking the life from her child. And there's a need for that child to escape so that she can become cleaved to her husband or can, can be joined to her husband as Genesis 3 talks about. It's not rebellion, it's life. Or it is rebellion, but not in a bad way. Um, but that story of an evil mother, well, that, why does, why does the mother always have to be the smothering one? Can't father smother? But, you know, these archetypal stories can can cut because um, they make us uncomfortable or because we don't see ourselves in them or sometimes because we see ourselves too clearly in them uh, and and we don't like what we see. And so why? I'm having a morning where I'm kind of (laughs) having a hard time staying on my focus here. The question we're we're trying to chase down is why why specifically do archetypal stories make us uncomfortable? And And I said it's because they cut. And um, the reason they cut is because they become an ideal. And this I get from Peterson as well, that um, anything can become an ideal. It's, you know, you could have, you could live for a great cause, like environmentalism. But as soon as you say, I'm going to dedicate my life to preserving the planet, well, that becomes your ideal. And when you have an ideal, an ideal becomes your judge. Well, are you doing all that you can to save the planet? Well, I'm not sure. And then we have this relationship to our ideal, where the ideal is judging us. You know, we we set out, and it happens instantly, you know. You set out, and you're excited, and you think, now I have something to live for. Now I have a purpose. Maybe it's saving pets or saving animals. Um... I'm going to dedicate my life to reducing animal suffering. And you, you come in on your, you burst in on your friends or, 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 or on Facebook or something and you say, this is my life purpose. Or this is what makes me excited is, is saving animals. And then somebody turns around and says, well, do you use your, do you shampoo with, with shampoo that was tested on animals? And all of a sudden your ideal has become your judge. And you're sitting there feeling judged and you're feeling as though there's an angry tyrant standing over you saying you don't measure up. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling. You have to choose your ideals ideals well because your ideals will become your judges. 
this was Jesus' fundamental critique, I believe, of the Pharisees, is that um, they taught as doctrines the precepts of men. You know, the Old Testament laws were supposed to, you're supposed to be able to see in all these laws. The heart principle was supposed to shine through of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what, that's what the Jews were supposed to get out of the Old Testament, according to Jesus. But what they tended to get out of it was, we need to live in a certain way. Again, with that, that feeling of disgust, you know, there's things need to be in their categories. Things shouldn't flow over. We are a perfect people. We are a special people, which is all true. Um, and we need to live in a certain way. And, um, and that's what's really important. So that's what judges us. And that's what we, that's what we don't measure up to or, or what we do measure up to. And once you choose your ideal, you choose your judge. And when you choose your judge, you've chosen how you're going to orient your life. You've basically chosen the God that you're going to serve. Uh, that is, that is, I mean, that's the theological way of thinking about it. That's the idol you're going to bow down to, or that's the God you're going to live down, live according to, or that's the ideal or the philosophy or whatever that you're going to live according to. And Jesus' critique of the Pharisees was that they're basically bowing down to this God of um, ritual purity when Jesus is saying it's not about being ritually pure. It's not about having clean hands. It's about having a clean heart. It's not about having a circumcised penis. It's about having a circumcised heart. Wow, wandering again. Just trying to explain what I meant by an ideal and we wandered on to penises. Um, so what I was trying to say is that, and not every ideal is becomes your central idol, but if you make it your ideal, that this is the one thing I'm living for, then yes, it becomes the, the central, central idol or religious belief or whatever of your life. Um, but all ideals cut to some extent. And I think that is the answer to my question. Why does it bother you so much? Why does the manger scene bother you so much? Why does the fundamental story of one man, one woman, desperately in love, apart from their parents, all alone, in the dark, with a child, why does that bother you so much? It's because it, it becomes an ideal. And ideals cut. So if you can imagine a waiting room with people filing in, and they've all been wounded by this ideal. They've all been wounded by the Cinderella story. They've all been wounded by, um, well, let's just stick with this. They've all been wounded by the, the manger scene, by the perfect picture of the manger scene. So you have a man wandering in and he says, you know, the doctor says, what's wrong with you? Or the triage nurse, what's wrong with you? And he says, I've been cut by the manger scene. How so? I'm not a good provider. I, I try and work hard, but I can't find a job. Um, I've got a bad temper. I try and keep it under control, but I just feel like I can't. I'm not that, I'm not that guy. Uh, I'm not Joseph. I'm not the the wise and gentle and providing man that I wish I could be. Well, that hurts. That hurts. 
and you have a woman wandering coming in. What what's what's wrong? Well, I don't really feel like Mary. I don't feel like I am a nurturing person. I don't feel like I have motherly instincts. Perhaps um, I don't. It doesn't. I don't feel meek and mild. <laughs> I don't feel like being subservient or um, you know certainly not subservient, but um, in that role of my whole life wrapped around the child that I don't see myself in that. Um, I don't see myself kneeling by the crib while Joseph is standing. I don't see myself not having a stick while Joseph gets to have a stick. I just, I don't see myself in that. Um, so there might be kind of <clears throat> ideas, ideological resistance, or <clears throat> it might be biological that, um, you know, and these are the really painful moments. I find myself infertile, um, or I'm too old. The moment has passed me by. Joseph has not found me, um, or perhaps the child has died, and now I'm infertile. Uh, there can be so many difficult stories, and those those hurt. That really hurts. Um, perhaps. Um, you know, here we get to the tumultuous center, but what about gender? Um, I'm biologically Mary, but I, I associate a lot more with Joseph. Or I'm biologically Joseph, but I associate m much more with the role of Mary. Um, what do we do with all these people in the waiting room that have all been cut by the nativity scene? So I'm going to try and answer that question, and I'm not going to do an awesome job because I, I don't know completely. And the point of this podcast is not, um, is not to know what to do with everybody. The point, actually, if we can continue the metaphor, I'm just the triage nurse, and I'm looking at people and saying, you know what your problem is, is you've been cut by the nativity scene. And behind me are some great professionals that can help you. Um, and I can't, I think that's been a big part of my journey in the last five years or so is realizing I can't help everybody. There's professionals that can do better than me. Um, I know a lot of ideas, but you know, there's counselors that can really help. Um, there's doctors that can help. Um, there's friends that can help. Uh, there's, there's other things that can help, but answer the question. Why do people want to change the archetype? Because they believe that if we can change this archetype, this nativity scene, that we'll stop the cutting. We will stop the hurt. And when you look at all the people that have been wounded by the nativity scene, you might think, well, no wonder we want to change it. Oh, something I forgot to mention in the, this list of people <laughs> hurt by the nativity scene. You can include me in there. Um, it, it doesn't hurt that much. But I think it's starting to, and it'll get worse, is realizing that's not my story anymore. Um, I did a podcast with a girl in her in her 20s uh, who's, I think I mentioned it previously, and hopefully I'll get around to, there's been some technical difficulties with trying to get that podcast mastered. Um, but, uh, you know, she's in her 20s, she's newly married, she's got a kid, and she's trying to sort through baggage from being raised very fundamentalist. 
uh, somewhat similar to myself. So it was an interesting conversation. But I realized, like, she's Mary, and her husband is Joseph, and they have a young child, and they're in the mess, in the mix of figuring out life, like, at that, at that time. And I'm not, you know, I've got, I've got five kids now, and we're done. Like, we're very done. <laughs> um, and and that, that season is ending. And there's a certain sadness to that, you know. And my wife and I talk about that often. As much as we're so excited to see the kids grow, we're excited for the next thing. Our oldest is 11, and we just can't wait for seeing what our kids will become as they turn into teenagers and young adults and, and go out into the world. We're so proud and so excited. And yet, I'm not Joseph anymore. You know, that, that baton is passed to somebody else. It's not my story anymore. I'm not... You know, even, you know, I used to have a blog and I felt like I was um, kind of pushing, pushing the edges of what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to be human and, and really asking the tough questions, you know. Maybe that's more what it was. You know, as, as I was podcasting with this woman, I thought, well, she's doing that now. And I kind of know what I believe. And that rebellion... It's not rebellion for rebellion's sake. It's rebellion for finding yourself's sake. And it's so important at a certain age. But it's not my story anymore, you know. And that passes to somebody else. And there's a sadness there. And I think by the time I get to 40 and 50 and 60, I think that sadness will get more and more and hopefully get turned to, you know, a nice nostalgia and, you know, thinking about the good times in the past, which... (laughs) probably didn't feel completely like good times, but you, you, you look at them through rose-colored glasses. and um, Anyway, so wandering a, a bit here, but uh, we all get wounded by the archetype uh, to a certain extent. So what do we do? One answer of what we can do is throw out the archetype. Just get rid of it. Tell our kids that there is no such thing as the archetype. A family is whatever you want it to be. Gender is whatever you want it to be. Kids come from, you know, well, they come from a woman. You can't change that yet, although there is probably work being done to try and change that, to try and make men have babies. Um, But this archetype, we can just throw it out. We don't need it. And uh, the right would try and say, well, we can redefine it. You know, we can can just get rid of the messiness. We don't need the mess of rebellion. We don't need the mess of, of the pain and, and, and kids becoming independent from their parents and, and rebelling and all that sort of stuff. We don't need that. We can, we can throw it out. We can redefine it. And to a certain extent, yes. To a certain extent, you know, the archetypal stories are patterns. And they're patterns that we know at a subconscious level that when you tell the story, it clicks and it's right. And it also mirrors reality. And to a certain extent, that those stories can be customized. They can be um, told a thousand different ways. And, and they can be changed to your specific setting. You know, it's not always Mary and Joseph on a midnight, you know, run over to, um, to Bethlehem. You know, it could be, um, what, I don't know. My creativity is, is kind of stumped at this point, but 
like the stories can be customized, they can be changed. So for sure there is some flexibility. But when you start changing them too much, then the story isn't the real story anymore. And that's and it becomes propaganda. It becomes I have a pre I have an idea of what the story should be and I'm going to I'm going to shove that. I'm I'm going to push that. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't it doesn't speak truth. Um, kids aren't necessarily lining up to, to listen to it. It's not the sort of thing that flies off the shelf. It's not the sort of thing that people resonate with. But if you get enough power behind it, you can tell the story. You can change the story. And you see this happening with left and with the right. Um, the right creates subcultures where the only thing you can listen to, the only thing you can watch, is our version of the story. And this is what I grew up with. Yeah, and this is what I talked with... Um, in the previous podcast, I definitely, I need to get that podcast out because I keep referring to it. So hopefully it's out by the time this is out. Um, you know, and, and we were raised with Veggie Tales and with, um, you know, contemporary Christian music, which was this whole sub-genre of, of music that was only approved for Christians. And uh, we grew up with stuff like McGee and Me. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Um, and, you know, kind of just Christian movies. And they sucked, like they were bad. And part of that was, I guess, you just need a certain skill set and uh, and funding, probably. I mean, they were kind of low budget movies. But I think part of it was that there wasn't courage to tell the real story. And um, you know, if if you talk to a lot of people, Christian movies have come a long way, and Christian movies today are a lot better than what I grew up with. And but if you talk to people my age, we tend to say like, I don't want to watch a Christian movie, like. I'm done. I like, I've watched so many Christian movies in my, in my childhood and they all sucked. And you could tell what the point of it was like in the first five minutes. And the rest of it was just driving home that point of just believe and all will work out or just pray and things will work out or, which is like, it's true. Yeah. Kind of. But like, I want a story that grips me and that is truth and that mirrors the struggle and, and anxiety and, and wrestling and, and overcoming of real life, you know, and, um, secular movies, there's some that really become classics because they retell these stories, you know, there's an evil queen and she, you know, there's a coming of age story where there's like an evil queen and, and the young boy is so trapped in that and he, has to wrestle and fight and then he finds his way out of that somehow you know and and finds victory from that and then he falls in love with a girl you know and it's it's like yes you know and that becomes a classic story but very few christian movies become classics (laughs) very i can't think of any off the top of my head um unless there's some that has some courage you know and that's probably why something like the shack as much as there's serious problems with it, it didn't tell, theologically, it didn't tell the story right. And that's what gets a lot of Christians worked up uh, about how they, um, how, well, how he portrayed God as a woman, <laughs> basically, is, is a big problem. Um, theologically, not just uh, ideologically. And uh, also how he, he described the atonement and how Jesus died for us. And there's other issues with that. But, I rewatched it with with um, the young adults in our 
previous ministry. And I had to admire the courage of it. You know, there was courage there. You didn't know how the story was going to end. And because of that, that daring and adventurous spirit, that it was a good story. It's a story that, that grabs you. Um, it's a story that, that has the potential to become a classic uh, if it isn't already. So not saying I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's theologically right, but I'm saying it was a good story. Well, there's, there's a difference here, and uh, I'm guessing that some Christians listening to this are, are saying, well, what do you, like, are you on our side? Is it bad? Is it good? Look, things can be good, but also theologically wrong. Um, what I'm trying to talk about now is telling the story well, telling a good story, um, and being connected to wisdom. You know, you can be con- something can be connected to wisdom, uh, but not connected to theological truth. Um, a good example of that, I think I'm way off my topic again, but a good example of that is uh, I was just listening to Bon Jovi. I was working through something in counseling or something like that and connected with this theme of, um, of independence and uh, rebelling against, um, well, against the evil mother archetype. And I kept thinking um, the Bon Jovi song, It's My Life. And so uh, I pulled that up and was listening to that. And it's a good song, you know. And, and so then I listened to the rest of his album, and it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> you know, he's, he's sleeping around with girls, and he's, um, you know, other things are not, you know, he's talking about drugs and stuff like that. And um, it's not as though he's a great paradigm of, life success and and theological like I wouldn't want to tell my kids that this is how you should live your life but on that song he told the story right that is the theme song of the young hero who has to escape from the evil mother you know it's my life and I'll do what I want um I'm not I'm not going to live forever I just want to live while I'm alive yeah that is the story you know because the evil mother when she smothers if you think of of the evil woman in, um, the evil mother figure in, um, in The Little Mermaid, you know, she smothers, and then she turns people into worms, so that she can grow bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful, that's, that's what the evil mother does, that's what a good mother becomes if she can't let go of her kids, as, as the scriptures say, a, a, a sword shall pierce your heart, and if a good mother doesn't let that sword pierce her heart, I believe it ends up piercing the heart of her son. She needs to feel that pain so that she can let him go. And, you know, it was really interesting as I was thinking about these images that the picture on the cover of Bon Jovi is a heart being pierced by a sword. I thought, that's interesting, you know. Um, anyway, it's just putting these things together. I don't know if I'm making sense here. So I think, let's get back to this. How do, I think we're asking the question, um, how do, I think we're on to how now, how do people try and distort the story? And I think the right just tries to take out all the messiness, take out all the yuck. People on the right have a low tolerance for, uh, messiness and, and for disgusting things. 
And so they want to take out all the yuck. And when you take out all the yuck, it takes all the power out of the story. Um, that was, if we get back to the shack, part of the power of that story is how yucky the evil person is. There's a pedophile in there that abducts a girl and rapes her and kills her and buries her body in the woods. Sorry, spoiler alert, but it happens fairly early in the movie, so it shouldn't ruin the movie for you. But like it's a, there's a real disgusting element to that movie. And you would never see themes like that in a good Christian movie. If they were, they'd be like mentioned really briefly and then kind of covered over um, as kind of the dark thing that we don't talk about. The, but it, it fuels the movie. It, it powers the movie because that's the anguish that this father is dealing with as he tries to talk with God. W when the right takes all the yuck out of the story, the story loses its power and you're just left with, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do with, with kind of a moralistic bang, bang, bang. When the left distorts the story, it just becomes like so open and so different that we don't know what the story is about anymore. And it doesn't connect anymore with, you know, and, and you kind of need them to explain like, what was this story about? Uh, because I didn't get it. It was interesting. It was amusing. But there's no, like, there's not a plot. There, there's nothing that sticks with me. Um, there, and it doesn't seem to, to tell me about what reality is like. It tells me about what you think reality should be like. And sometimes it can be ide ideologically driven from the left. And sometimes you have those movies and it's like, oh, come on. I know where this is going. Um, that, you know, whenever you see a, a pastor in a movie, it's like, oh, boy. <laughs> Here's a, you know, overly conservative, not nice guy that has a nice front, but inside, really, he's a bad guy, and, and he is mean to his kids and everything like this. Like, he, oftentimes, there's an axe to grind, and um, when the left tells a story, sometimes there, there are certain patterns that they can fall into. Um, but... Where I'm trying to get to is that um, the story can just become like that. There isn't the archetypal story is not being retold, perhaps because it's uncomfortable, because it cuts somebody, and we don't want to cut anybody. We don't want to exclude anybody from the story, so we want to expand the story till it includes everybody. But if it includes everybody, it's not a story about anything anymore. It's just a bunch of amusing characters doing something amusing, but. What's the story? Where's the where's the where's the connection to deeper truth and wisdom? So one example of this, not that it's a terrible movie, but uh, Ice Age, for example. Um, again, it's not a bad movie. That, that's I am I am not talking about moralistic right and wrong, either defined by the left or by the right. I'm talking about wisdom. And uh, Ice Age is this tale about um, a bunch of animals that are trying to escape certain doom. And along the way, they pick up a human child. And um, they all kind of discover a maternal instinct in them. They're all male. And then they um, band together to return this human back to its family, back to its tribe and back 
his family. So I heard the explanation uh, somewhere online or something. I, there was a clip or something about how this is a movie about um, the ever-changing nature of family in today's society. Okay. I mean, that, that's interesting. That is an interesting tale. And again, I'm walking a fine line because I'm not trying to say that that was a bad story. I'm not trying to say that the message that family can mean a lot of things to a lot of people is a bad message. I'm not trying to say that's a bad message at all. That, that is a good message because, you know, even for heterosexual Christians, marriage can mean a lot of different things. Um, but it's hard to remember the plot line of Ice Age. You know, I mentioned it just now, and it's like, oh, yeah, that was the plot line. But there's not um, an archetypal substructure to it. It's, it's really hard to remember what the plot line is. It's not hard to remember the plot line of Sleeping Beauty. You know, there's a terrible man, um, and he meets a beautiful woman, and she teaches him to be kind, and they fall in love and live happily ever after. It's not hard to remember the plot line of Sleeping Beauty. You know, there's an evil woman figure um, that causes the, the woman to fall asleep and locks the man in a dungeon. The man gets out of the dungeon, conquers the evil woman, wakes up the, the princess with his love, and the two live happily ever after. It's not hard to remember the Lion King story, that there's a good king and a bad king. The bad king kills the good king and exiles the prince. Um, the prince becomes strong and eventually rediscovers his identity and comes back to conquer the evil king and become king in his place. You know, you can rattle off the storyline, but what actually happens in Ice Age? It's, well, they find a baby and they bring him back. And along the way, they discover a maternal instinct and become a tribe. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, okay. But like, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know if I know what I'm saying. Um, another move, another story is like Shrek, you know, the first movie of Shrek, which was very popular. You need to notice when things are popular because it usually means that they're connecting with something. But I cannot for the life of me remember what the plot line of Shrek is. Um, like what, how would you structure it? Like what is the, strange things just keep happening. There, there's like these little clips that are like, you remember that, you know, you remember when they go to the, 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 the too perfect town that the little guy is in charge of, the little dictator, and it's all perfect and there's no disgusting thing allowed there. Um, they're not allowed to say ass for bum uh, and, and things like that. You, you remember that and you remember something about a dragon and you remember Princess Fiona singing to the bird and making it pop and that was a funny thing. And, and you know that somehow Fiona becomes okay with being, you know, how shall I say, like Shrek. I wanted to say fat and ugly, but that would, uh, <laughs> she, she becomes okay with being large and green and having weird ears and, and figuring out that that is how she wants to be. Um, but like, how does it fit together? You know, it, 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 it doesn't really fit together. And I think it doesn't really, there, there isn't this, this 
story at the bottom of it because it's an ideologically driven story. It's trying to tell the message that um, the princess story that you grew up with is wrong and we need to try and change it on every level. And we can still have a princess story, but it's just changed on every level. And I mean, that's fine. It's popular. It's fun. It was very well done, very well acted, very well animated. But it's an ideologically driven story. It doesn't connect to the archetype. I don't think that it connects to fundamental reality. It connects to our reality in the West, what we're experiencing, uh, what is going on with us. Um, And that's important to say. It's an important tale to, to tell. But I don't think it connects with um, with the unchanging nature of, of wisdom and the human experience. So I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable again because I'm not trying to say it's a bad story. I, I hope I've said that enough times. I, I, I still feel like people are listening to me thinking, well, he just doesn't like Shrek. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, I think people are, are listening to me thinking, well, he just thinks that... that Shrek is a story that shouldn't be told, or Ice Age is a story that shouldn't be told. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to provide examples of ideologically driven stories versus stories that arise naturally from from archetypes and from the stories being told well and be in connection with with the ancient stories. And it's probably also sounding as though I win because the archetypes are on my side and uh, those that try and change the archetypes don't agree with, you know, one man, one woman, conservative Christian view of marriage, uh, which I do believe that to some extent. Um, but what I'm trying to express is that there is uncomfortable stuff here for both sides. And also what I want to do, what I'm trying, the kind of the main thing I'm trying to do is to locate the source of the cut and the pain. Archetypes cut archetypes that's what hurts if we go back to that waiting room and thinking about those people walking in you know there is a fundamental nature to reality that we can find ourselves outside of the story and it cuts and it hurts and sometimes that hurt is because we should move into the story there there's a role that we should be playing here i am going to use the the moralistic sense you know it if you need to escape from a tyrant father or a tyrant mother you need to do it you know whether that's at work or at home or in a social situation you should do it um so sometimes we we feel the pressure of that and the cut of that and it's pushing us to action and we should do something we should play out our role in the story but sometimes we feel the push and the cut of that and there's nothing we can do. It's just sad. It's just the moment has passed us by. Um, we're not capable of taking up that, that place in the story. And that's just sad. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing good about that. So it's at that point that there can be a desire to retell the story, to change the story, to get rid of the archetype that cuts. And... There's at least two ways of doing that. One is our ideology, as we've mentioned. Um, you can just 
get your idea of what the story should be and just shove that and put that in the place. Knock down the nativity scene and put up, you know, take the three wise men in and give them the baby. We don't need Mary. We don't need Joseph. Um, we can change the story. And there you go. Um, one of the problems with that is that it, it feels like it doesn't stick. It feels like it doesn't, doesn't catch on. You have to keep enforcing it. You have to keep pushing it through power, uh, whatever that power is, to make that story the central. Um, and I noticed this because I got young kids, and uh, I've got a young girl that is very girly. Not all girls are. Not all girls have to be. Not all boys need to be stereotypical boys. I have boys. I have four boys, and they are all over the map as far as and and it changes based on their age whether they're more active or less active more bookish or less bookish um more emotional less emotional i have some very emotional boys um so those stereotypes all right that's what i wanted to talk about ah very important um all right so it's duly noted i'm going to talk about um archetypes being perfections and, and stereotypes okay but what I want to talk about here is that um, I try and find stories at libraries for my daughter who is begging me for princess stories. And she wants things that are pink. And she wants to be told the story about being the princess. And I didn't tell her that. You, you probably don't believe me <laughs> if you know me because you know I'm a conservative guy and whatever. Um, but I'm telling you, from the moment that she could talk, she wanted to talk about princesses. And, um, well, where, where we used to live was out in Quebec, which is, I've heard, the most feminine, the most feminist population on earth. I don't know if that's still true or how they measure that, but I've, I've heard it told. And, and there's a very strong um, slant towards feminism. And try and find a simple princess book in, uh, well, for one thing, it was a French library. There's a small English section. But it was all counter stories. It was all stories about how um, the princess doesn't need the prince. And so she, she saves herself. Or the princess takes on the dragon and beats him all by, by herself. Or else the princess has a party with the other princesses and they discuss how they don't need a prince. And, you know, these ideologically driven stories. Um, all right, so we're <clears throat> coming up on an hour here. I'm going to try and gather together all the loose ends of my, my talking. Um, something that didn't come, I wasn't expecting to come up, but uh, it's an interesting discussion about disgust and how the right has a low tolerance for disgust. Um, Jordan Peterson mentioned in a recent post podcast that um, it was discovered or, or somebody made the case for the fact that um, Hitler was not motivated by anger. You know, we tend to think of him as an angry person. But, you know, if you think of the five fundamental emotions that I, I listed before, of fear, anger, love, disgust, and um, whatever the other one was. Or sorry, that um, the stereotype is that he was motivated by fear. 
but it seems more accurate that he was motivated by disgust and uh, distaste for things being out of their place. And it began with cleaning up workers' conditions, killing rats in workplaces. And then it moved into and cleaning off the streets, uh, closing up the borders, stopping immigration. And then it moved into rounding up gypsies and Jews and cripples and getting all the yuck out of society. And it went to very dangerous places. So anyways, that's how the right can go off the rails. It's just interesting to see that. And that kind of came into this um, discussion. And I just thought I'd add that to it. So... If we think of a waiting room, this is where we're going to end with thinking about this waiting room. We're going to see there's some, the first wave of people came in because um, the archetype cut them. Well, now there's a second wave of people coming in. Why else do people come into the waiting room? Well, some people are coming in because ideologies cut them. And you have people on the right and ideology cut them because they were, they were told stories that weren't true. They were told love stories that had no uh, rebellion in them. They were told love stories that had overbearing fathers, overbearing mothers as part of the story, as, that, as though that was normal. And when they got to that crucial time in life, they didn't know how to find the Prince Charming. They didn't know how to be Cinderella. They didn't know how to live out the love story. And they missed it. They messed it up. And that's extremely painful. And then you have people coming in that were hurt by ideology on the left, where um, you know, people were terrified to tell them the old story about a man and a woman falling in love and having a child. And they told and in their own ways, that part of life missed them. And they weren't told that story and that there was a price to pay for that because that is there is a certain structure to life that they weren't told about and the last wave of people and this is um, just added at the last minute as I was thinking about um, stereotypes um, some people get cut by archetypes or archetypal stories because they're told um, in a too precise way there needs to be some flexibility in how the story is told. Um, and we need to understand that the stories are um, perfections. Like it never happens that perfectly in real life. They're, the stories that we tell are meant to give us patterns, to put patterns in our mind to understand how the world works. But the patterns that wisdom gives are rarely exactly how it works out in real life. And so, as I mentioned, um, masculinity, you know, in the archetype of masculinity is strong, provider, less emotionally engaged, um, fearless, uh, physically dominant. But that's not how every man experiences masculinity. That's probably not how any man experiences masculinity in, in all of its um, components. And, and also tender towards, um, towards his beauty and towards the ki his kids. Um, 
we experience different aspects of that, but that's, that's a perfection. It's an idea. Nobody is the ideal. Nobody is the idea. And so, um, and so we're saying that um, there's a, at least three ways that people can be hurt by archetypes. The first is life is just presents itself in a certain way. The stories present themselves in a certain way, and I don't fit into that. I don't fit into that right now. I don't fit into that anymore. Maybe I never fit into that. That hurts. Um, people can also be hurt when they their parents rejected the archetype and they only taught the propaganda, which doesn't connect to the fundamental um, structure of reality. And then they got to those crucial times of life and they made the wrong decision. And then they get past them and they say, nobody told me that this is how life is. And I missed it and I blew it because I wasn't told the wisdom. I wasn't told the good stories. And then there's a third type of person. Um, and maybe the third and the first have a lot in common, but where they were told the fundamental stories, they were told the archetypal stories, they were taught, told about the fu fundamental nature of reality, but they were told it in a way that was too sterile and too narrow, and um, where they were very binary choices. Binary is maybe loaded terminology, but where masculinity is very rigid, and this is what it is, and femininity is very rigid, and that is what it is, and they're like, that, that, that doesn't fit me. That's not where I see myself. And there needs to be some flexibility in how we, we tell the stories. So let's see if we can draw some of these threads together. What are archetypes? Archetypes are patterns. They're patterns for understanding the world. And they're true in the sense of them being wisdom. And we talked in the first podcast about the relationship between historical truth and um, and wisdom. This podcast, what's come up is kind of theological truth versus wisdom, and they're not always the same thing. Uh, you can have somebody like a Bon Jovi that that gets it. He gets wisdom. He understands what it means to on that point. The, he understands what it means to separate from the evil mother. Uh, but theologically, you know, he might not be the best source uh, for truth. So archetypes are wisdom. They tell us how the world works. And they're really essential for understanding life and for understanding, navigating the complexity of the human condition. In this podcast, I talked a lot about archetypes cut. And how, why do archetypes cut? It's because they become an ideal. And when we have an ideal, the ideal becomes a judge. And the judge hurts because we don't live up to the ideal. So this can cause us to want to change the archetype into something that suits us better, something that resembles us more, less, and we do this with our ideals. The ideal cuts, the ideal makes us feel uncomfortable, so we say, well, let's, let's change that. Um, Voltaire said, God made man in, our, in his image, and man returned the favor. There's this, this desire to, to recast our God or God uh, in our own image so that we feel less judged and less uncomfortable. And so um, we can try to retell the stories. And to some extent, that's necessary. And to some extent, that is healthy and that is good. And every good storyteller tells a story a little bit different depending on the audience and depending on his life experience and depending on his creativity that day. And, and the truth flows. Um, wisdom does not flow in linear pathways. Uh, there, 
it, it has a um, circuitous flow to it. So there, there is a need to tell the stories in an expansive way. But they can only be expanded so far before the stories stop being wisdom. If you try and include everybody and everything in the story, then it's no longer a story about anything. And you can only keep it alive by, you know, just humor or good acting or something. So archetypal stories can be told poorly, um, either being too rigid or uh, by by importing ideology, or um, well, those are the two things: by being told too rigidly, or else by importing ideology either from the left or to the or from the right. Generally speaking, you could be more specific than that. But you can never completely get away from archetypes. Uh, you can never completely get away from these stories. And I don't think you can ever completely redefine these stories. No matter how much we sell books to girls about being the warrior princess and, and not needing a man, there's still going to be Barbie dolls sold and there's still going to be princess books sold and there's still going to be that sort of thing there, there's still a hunger for these stories and I think the hunger is there because there is they do speak to the, the fundamental nature of reality there is a reality to this and no matter how uncomfortable the right feels about the ickiness of the story and rebellion and, and stories about the evil mother and evil father those stories are still going to be there they're still going to be popular they can't get away from them because it's true. 